Um, thank you. Thank you. Guys, <laughs> I was so confused. He kept looking at me, and I was like, no, look to Jesus. <laughs> no. He's like, no, I'm looking to you. Um, I have a few quick announcements. Um, the first is that I would like to initiate a petition for Pastor Chris to take all of his frequent and surprisingly thorough base camp posts and make them into a blog so that we have access to them at all times and other people can see them too. Uh, the second is that it is now officially Theologian Shirt Month for preachers. So whoever's next, don't wear our minus. Okay? Probably the guy who's preaching got that and my dad and like two other people. Um, and also you might have seen a motorcycle on the way in. Chris, that's for a giveaway at the end of yes. service? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, I, want, I want to start my sermon by just drawing on some shared knowledge to get us all kind of in the same mindset. And that shared knowledge is from the optometrist. And it's that really slow and boring and maybe painful process of them testing your eyes where they take the lens, that whole, like, robot mask thing, and they put it on you, and you look like an alien, which is my favorite part of that. And they go between two different lenses. You go one or two. One or two. And you can't really tell a difference, but you say two. And then they go two or three. And you're like, wow, three is much better. And then they go one or three. And you're like, okay, definitely three. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And then they take the number three, the one which is clearly the best, and they start to just rotate it a little bit. And then they'll like switch over and they'll test the other eye. And then they'll take the lens and like flip it around just to see which one's going to be best. What they're doing is focusing that little house at the end of the street by examining multiple dimensions of clarity. There's lens strength, pupillary distance, um, rotation, sphere and cylinder power, and they're all being adjusted one at a time to fine-tune the clarity of that image. And I want to do that with our text this morning, which is Acts 16, 1 through 5. I want to take the time to discuss how in our study of the Bible... Um, whether that's corporate or individual, we can come to clarity with parts of the Bible that begin fuzzy or odd or maybe even contradictory. There are some parts of the Bible that on first reading seem confusing or maybe even paradoxical. And these leads to big questions like, are we saved by faith or by works, right? Are you reading James or Ephesians, and how do the two go together? Is there only one God, or is Jesus also God? Like at first read, that's a, that's a confusing subject. Does God, does God forgive everyone or only specific people? And the one that, in my heart, I've really been struggling with is whether or not I should beat my swords to plowshares and my spears to pruning hooks, or my pruning hooks to spears and my plowshares 
to swords. That's hard to say. Because Joel and Isaiah do not agree on that one <laughs> at all. And that's uh, clearly very relevant for our age. Um, all these questions that the more serious ones particularly, uh, they seem to have Bible verses that you could really argue both sides from. So we need to take our lenses and focus on them until they're clear as a whole. So we're taking today's text as our practice round, and next week I expect all of you to come to me with answers for the other questions I mentioned. Um, The sermon will be kind of part teaching, part encouraging, and I think it's okay to have, I'm going to try to be a bit practical in showing you study guide topics, um, because one of the goals of pastoring, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.12, is for us on stage to equip you, the saints, for ministry. And I think one of the best ways for you to be prepared for ministry is for you to understand how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible. So hopefully this message will give you or remind you of some of the tools in the Bible study toolkit, some lenses that you might have forgotten you had, while at the same time encouraging you to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. So what are the lenses I'm going to be looking through today? Well, there are four. That's them. There's terms, people, genre, and context. And you can use these in studying any part of the Bible. Terms, people, genre, and context. And these four lenses hopefully will lead us to three kinds of clarity. They'll come back. Um, Meaning, restatement, and purpose. I'm just giving you the roadmap for where we're going. We're going through four lenses and then three kinds of clarity. By looking at Acts 16, 1 through 5, through the four lenses, we will, I pray, be able to come to a clearer picture of what is meant in God's word. So first, let's read Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So clearly there's a happy ending here. But what is going on? Like, why, why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Didn't the apostles just decide not to make circumcision a thing for Christians? And Paul was definitely there. And he was part of the conversation. And he was on the don't circumcise side of things. So why is it that the very next thing he does is goes and circumcises Timothy? And what's up with circumcision anyway? And assuming that we don't 
have to be circumcised? Like, is this saying that we should anyway? You will, of course, remember Chris's very thorough exposition of the Jerusalem Council and circumcision last week. Well, okay, Chris is great, but he's only mostly expositional. So I have the wonderful opportunity in preaching Acts 16 to reach back to Acts 15 and explain a little bit about the Jerusalem Council and circumcision, just a a little bit more. Uh, But before we bring the word under our lenses, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have delivered to us today your word. We thank you that in your providence, all of the things that we have just read happened, were recorded, and were given to us to read right here and now. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would enlighten us as to how to understand your word in general and how to understand this passage in particular, and that we would be encouraged toward the purposes you have for us in Christ. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So our first lens, coming back, is terms. We have to ask ourselves first, are there any terms or words or phrases that I need to define? Or what do I need to define so I can understand this text. The way I look at it in this one passage, there are eight kind of things that if you don't know what they are, might be confusing. There's the cities, which are Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. There are three groups, the Jews, the Greeks, and the brothers. There's circumcision. If you don't understand that, this whole thing is just kind of not, doesn't mean a lot to you. And then there's this phrase, the decisions. Um, that's in verse 4. It says they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles. So let's begin our fine-tuning. From the top, we have the cities visited here. We have a record of Paul visiting all three of these cities in Acts 14. Paul was in Iconium because the Jews in Antioch stirred up persecution for Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Acts 14, verse 1, says that a great number of Jews and of Gentiles believed when Paul preached at Iconium. But the Jews stirred up a rebellion and a plot to stone Paul, so Paul and Barnabas left for Lystra. The red arrows indicate being forced out by persecution. You can see that happens a bunch for Paul. In Lystra is where the men believed Paul and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus. The Jews who had kicked him out of Antioch and Iconium followed him all the way to Lystra and got him stoned there. And that's where Pastor Chris preached about staying near and drawing near to those who are being persecuted because many of the disciples gathered around him after he had been stoned. So he was stoned, and the next day he goes to Derby. Like he's almost dead, and then he's like, okay, well, I'll take a night off, and then we'll go. He goes uh, to Derby and converted many people. Then they go back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, where they had already been persecuted. 
The arrows here are green because it's almost Christmas. So Paul has some serious history in these cities. And after this, he goes back to Antioch, and now he's come back to them again. And he meets this kid named Timmy. Timothy. Uh, There's more stuff about the cities, but I think that's enough for now. Um, So we've talked about the cities. Let's talk about the groups. There are three main groups here, the Jews, the Greeks, and the brothers. The Jews are the staunch circumcision-honoring Jews. Now, there were a lot of Jews who had given up on that tradition, but these ones in particular were holding fast to the symbols that were meant to mark them apart as people of God, particularly circumcision, holy days, and the ceremonial laws. Many of these Jews, and Jews in general at that time, would refuse to associate with non-Jews, particularly not receiving hospitality from them. What if, what if I'm a very observant Jew and I go over to a Gentile's house and they want to give me dinner and I don't know what's in it? Or I don't, maybe, maybe it looks like there's no pork in here, but maybe they cooked it in pork fat. I just don't know if it's clean or not. And really, I don't know if they're clean or not. They're not observing cleanliness laws, so... Maybe they just touched a dead body, and if they touched me, now I'm ceremonially unclean. So it's just, they just didn't take the risk. A lot of them would just not associate with Gentiles. We should also remember that in the context of what we're reading, the Jews are the one, these ones who have been stirring up persecution and trouble for Paul. The second group, the Greeks, are Greek. They're just non-Jews from Greece, not Not all the Bible is very confusing. Um, I'll point out a little difference between two words that we kind of throw around interchangeably. One is Gentile and one is Greek. Gentile comes from the Greek word ethnos, and it means nations. It's just all the peoples. Greek, Hellenos, means Greek, specifically. So Timothy's father is a Greek Gentile. Most Greeks are Gentiles, but not all Gentiles are Greek. All right, so Greeks, easy. Last group are the brothers. These are just believers in Christ. Some of them used to be Jews. Some of them used to be Greek. But in Christ, there is an overriding identity. They're no longer primarily Jewish or Greek. They're primarily Christian. And secondarily, their ethnicity. So we have these three cities, three groups of people, and now one very unique practice, circumcision. I think we've, we've talked about it a little bit before, but just as a reminder, circumcision was a visible outward mark of the Jewish community. The word means to cut around, and that's exactly what it was, is God established circumcision with Abraham as a covenant symbol. And as a reminder of his promise to bring about a son from Abraham who would save Israel. There's a clear connection between circumcision, the act of circumcising, and procreation, which is like an act of faith to say, okay, this this part of me that can bring about the lineage of the Messiah, I'm going to attack it and trust that God will protect it. 
Um, and I think that it's also an act of faith of trusting that God will bring about and protect the seed the Messiah will come from, even when it's attacked from all sides. Now, circumcision was similar to baptism for the Hebrews. It's an outward mark of identity with Yahweh and trust in his Messiah. And the circumcision had become one of the most important cultural identifiers for the Jews in Rome. You see, in Rome, for hundreds of years, when you wanted to relax or see your friends, you didn't get on Xbox Live or Snapchat or Facebook to just entertain yourself and waste some time. You had to go out and do something. You had to go outside. Really novel concept. They had some things right. And just like in cities today, there were rec centers throughout Rome, which are kind of like YMCA with restaurants attached. So imagine, I'm thinking about like Lenexa Town Center, but just imagine a really nice town center, and the buildings are wrapped around a field. Gardens, workout areas, tennis courts, pools, wrestling competitions, football fields, just everything, all this hustle and bustle, sports kind of activity. And what you would have done in your afternoon is you'd go to the local rec center, which they called the baths. We'll get there for just a second. So after the 9 to 5, you'd go spend time working out, lifting weights, playing sports with the boys. Um, ladies would go too, but they weren't as athletic. Like that wasn't a part of female culture for them. So you, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, these strangers you ended up a pickup game with of baseball, I suppose, uh, you all get sweaty, and then you head to the locker rooms, just like normal. And, okay, so you know that awkward moment where you're in the locker room at the gym, and some dude or lady, separate, just has no awareness, and they're just walking around completely naked. In Rome, that's not awkward. That's normal, okay? And actually... Well, I have a picture. <laughs> Not, oh, you guys. Actually, what you would do is you'd go to the locker room, you'd take off your clothes, and then you'd go take a bath. So um, I'm thinking of the movie Risen, where you've got Pontius Pilate and the Centurion chilling in the bath together. That's an almost accurate scene, except they'd be naked. Um, but you'd go, and then you'd go to the sauna, and this is, I think this is a cold bathroom. Um, you'd go to a sauna, and then a hot bath, and then a warm bath, and then a cold bath. And so you'd have like the progressive dinner of baths with your friends. I don't know. It's weird stuff. Uh, but during the course of this, obviously, your slaves would be scraping the dirt off you and maybe giving you a massage. So nakedness back then in this culture, just not quite an issue. Then you and the boys will get dressed, go outside and get some Little Caesars. Because uh, you're in Rome. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that one worked. Um, and there are still countries today, I mean, where this, basically this exact thing happens. So in Japan, where communal showers or baths are normal, you, you and the guys... Instead of going out to a coffee shop, you're like, hey, let's go to the bath. 
and it's very relaxing and it's just normal for them. So all of that to say, it's no secret in this culture whether or not someone is circumcised. All your neighbors, all your friends, all your coworkers knew whether you were a serious circumcision-honoring Jew or if you were a Greek. Being a devout Jew back then was basically a political statement. It wasn't just a religious thing, it was political. So be, just, just imagine, if you will, a world, and I know this is crazy, a world in which you can walk down the street and basically tell whether or not someone is a Republican or a Democrat. Just try to imagine that with me. There's no way we could possibly relate to that, even a little bit. And that's why circumcision was important back then, because it's a public matter. Everyone knows your religious and probably your political affiliation if you go and work out with people. Now we just wear swimsuits, so praise God. Um, but this defined who you are in the eyes of the community. So that's a bit on circumcision. Uh, the last term that might need a definition or at least a reminder for us is the decisions. Verse 4 says, as they went through their way, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So back in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council the decisions were made that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Acts 15 says in verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 5 says, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So like Chris said, circumcision is the entry point for all of the law. But the decision they came to, as Chris taught last week on this verse, is that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So their conclusion is that salvation is by grace, through faith, not of any works. And this is a big deal. The Christian ship has set sail from its Israelite dock. It's culturally loosed to go to the ends of the earth. God is no longer concerned with circumcision of the flesh done by human hands, but circumcision of the heart is done by the hand of Christ. Paul writes to the Romans that circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the law. And in Colossians, Paul speaks to the brothers as those who in Christ were, quote, circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hand. This was always God's intention. When God was about to settle his people in Israel, over a thousand years before Jesus was born, he reassured them that he, not their obedience to the law, would save them. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. 
says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Therefore, since circumcision of the heart is what matters, Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7.19 that circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. He doesn't say it's important. He doesn't say it's a huge issue. He just says it's nothing. It's no longer an issue. So Christians don't need to be circumcised. But there are some other best practices that the apostles in Jerusalem came to the decision about. They decided that Christians living in Hebrew Jewish cultures needed to help their witness. They, they told Christians living in Jewish cultures to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, that they not eat blood, and that they abstain from sexual immorality. So they gave them a few things and said, hey, if you want to live in the Jewish community and witness to them, it would be best for you not to do these things that seriously offend them. And the principle here is that we should be willing to abstain from kind of fringe practices that may offend our brothers and sisters in Christ or our witness to those who are not yet in Christ. And that principle will extend into the passage that we're reading today. So we can see from all the terms what happened in the cities, what groups were involved, the kind of political statement going on, and that there was a huge argument over this, that this is a hot-button issue. This is not just like a random decision to be made. So when Timothy, when Paul decided to have Timothy circumcised, this wasn't just like, hey, for you. This was influenced by and had ramifications in the whole community. It wasn't just about Timothy. Now, for those of you who already knew about the people, the places, the practices, this might have been a little bit of review, but I think we take it for granted sometimes that we just know these things. We know who Paul is. We know what circumcision is. We know where these cities were. Maybe only a few of us. Um, and if you already know these things, then praise God that he's given you that knowledge of the word. And you should share that knowledge and teach your children and disciple them in these things. But if you haven't been taught these things before, and you come to this passage that we just read, it means almost nothing to you. There are people who do a thing in a place. So there's just a lot of, if we don't define the terms, we can't understand the whole story. The next lens, the people, the individual people, might also seem like a bit of review, but if you don't know who the main characters are, you may end up confused. The first person in this story is Luke. And if you're paying attention you noticed Luke's not in this story. But he's one of the most important people here because he's the author of Acts. We have to remember that Luke was writing this, and he chose, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to write chapter 16, mere moments, minutes, hours, after writing chapter 15. 
So if we see a contradiction, if we see confusion, we should remember Luke didn't. He wrote these things back to back. And as he tells us in Luke chapter 1, Luke had been following all the things that happened around Jesus and the apostles closely, and he wanted to write an orderly account, a very careful story. These words just didn't appear in a book one day. They're not random. And if it seems like there's a contradiction or an issue, we have to remember, again, Luke wrote this one after the other, and he didn't see an issue. Next up are Paul and Silas. Um, Silas isn't really a main character, but he's with Paul. Paul used to be a Pharisee, teacher of the Jewish law, who persecuted the church until Jesus saved him. Silas was one of the leaders from Jerusalem who was sent to bring the decision to Antioch with Paul. Paul is also the guy who would go on to write a bunch of the books of the New Testament, including two letters to Timothy. He and Timothy end up becoming very close through their ministry together. And I think, did you mention last week how hard it is to read 2 Timothy without crying? I have, I have that issue too, to, to see the close bond between these two men at the end of Paul's life. And he's, Timothy's like the only guy Paul has left, it feels like. Um, so Paul also wrote what we read from 1 Corinthians, that circumcision is nothing. And when he wrote to the Galatians about this very issue, he said that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He basically says, if you accept circumcision, you're going to have a lot of trouble being saved by Jesus. And this is the issue here. How could the same guy who just dis- or circumcised Timothy tell a whole church, if you accept circumcision, good luck. Christ is of no advantage to you. Did he change his mind in between now and then? Did he just lie to one of them? Or did he decide that it would be worth endangering Timothy's salvation for some other greater purpose? that he would make Timothy his sacrificial lamb. We'll look more at that problem in our next section, context. And our our last character is Timothy. He's a new kid on the block. This is his first appearance in Acts. And we know one thing about him, that the brothers in Lystra and Iconium speak well of him. And that's a really strong testimony because these are the same men who witnessed the persecution of Paul and stuck with him. These are trustworthy men who are able to teach others. Timothy will go on to be a pastor even though he's a really young guy. So hopefully remembering that these are real people involved will remind us that they made decisions rationally They prayed for guidance, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They didn't just do things randomly. So when Paul decides to circumcise Timothy, he views it as the best way to love God and love their neighbors. So now with our cast of people more clearly defined, we're ready to start asking a few of the bigger questions. Like, 
What am I reading? What is this? What is Acts? The lens of genre helps us to see what kind of thing we're reading. In the Bible, we have stories, we have personal letters, we have poems, we have direct commands. Acts is a historical narrative. It is a true historical story. And it contains quotes of sermons, uh, letters, and prayers. On the whole, Acts simply describes what happens as they happen. It mostly is descriptive. It doesn't tell you what to do. It just tells you what happened. So when Paul circumcised Timothy, it's not as if God is telling you that you need to be circumcised. God is telling you Paul circumcised Timothy. However, in chapter 15, just before Paul circumcises Timothy, the decisions the apostles made were telling people what to do. And that's one of the key differences between these two passages. One tells people what to do. One tells you what happened. Acts 15 commands Christians not to lay the burden of the law on other Christians. Thou shalt not burden thy brethren. You will not burden your brothers. And I need to point out here what it doesn't say. Acts 15 did not say, you must not be circumcised. It's not what it said. The decision was, you must not compel others to circumcision for their salvation. You can't tell someone that they're not saved if they don't follow the law. That's what Acts 15 is about. Acts 16 tells a simple story. Because of the Jews in the area, Paul circumcised Timothy. Remember, those Jews that it's talking about are the ones who tried to kill Paul. Maybe Paul had a good reason for what he was doing here. So at this point, the meaning of the text should be coming clearer into focus, and we're going to sharpen this image one last time through a very, very, very important lens, context. It has been said that the three most important factors in real estate sales are location, location, location. And the same goes for understanding the Bible. Where a thing happens, where it happens in God's story gives it its meaning and its color and it helps us see what it means. Therefore, the three rules of proper, proper biblical interpretation are context, context, context. So let's start with the really big picture, major context. God's eternal purposes stand. He is true. His words are true. We always have to remember that when we come to the Bible, particularly when we come to a part of the Bible that's weird or contradictory and seems like this just doesn't make sense. So we have to remember that if it seems like part of this can't be true, God wrote it. He's always true. We're the ones who just maybe aren't getting it yet. Now we're going to review some things 
uh, from earlier in the Bible and some things that we've talked about, and we're going to use this to get our last kind of fine-tuning on the image of this text. One, we know that God redeemed the world, or God created the world, and promised to redeem it by his own hand. Two, we know that God promised not only to redeem the world by his hand, but to redeem his people by his hand. We saw that in Deuteronomy. We also saw in Deuteronomy that circumcision of the flesh is a foreshadowing for circumcision of the heart. Beginning all the way back with Abraham, a third piece of context is that God made it clear that men are justified by faith, not their works. Abraham was viewed as righteous by God before he was circumcised because he had faith. Now I'm going to jump from Genesis to like John and we're going to narrow in quite a bit and and realize that it's only been a few years for the apostles since Christ came, taught them, fulfilled the law, died, resurrected, commissioned the disciples. That's a whirlwind to have in just a few years. And it's only been like less time than that that they'd really been seeing Gentiles come to the church. So they haven't had a lot of time to face the issue of whether or not Gentiles, Gentile believers need to be circumcised. This is the first time they really hash it out. Even closer in the context, we see that Paul and the other apostles in Acts 15 just decided that no one needs to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul, after doing that, has decided to revisit the towns where the Jews persecuted him to deliver that decision to them and to see how they're doing. And then moving forward a little bit, that was all leading up to where we are. At the end of our passage in verse 5, there's a sentence that I haven't talked about yet because I think it's pretty clear. It says in verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. This is how Luke says God likes what's happening. It happens in Acts a lot. There's prayer, the church grows. They make a strong decision, the church grows. People are persecuted, the church grows. It's God's stamp of approval on what's going on. So in verse 5, when it says the church grows, that means God liked the Jerusalem council and what Paul did in circumcising Timothy. That both of those things were instrumental in the growth of the church. And then for a bit further future context, we know that Paul and Timothy both go on to have fruitful ministry and to continue to preach salvation by faith apart from circumcision or any other work. So now, with our four lenses in place, the terms, people, genre, and context, we should be able to see the passage with a lot more clarity than before and understand why, maybe why it is that Paul circumcised Timothy. So, Let's let's make that explicit. Let's practice three types of clarity I mentioned. The first is meaning, which is what does what I just read mean? Not what does it mean for me, but what does it mean? What What were they thinking? What are they doing? So there's one thing we know. It doesn't 
mean? It does not mean that Paul was trying to save Timothy's soul by circumcising him. There is just no way that Paul circumcised Timothy to have him be justified before God. That's out. Not an option at all. Given our context and what we've talked about so far, there's another phrase that comes to light now that we've thought a bit more deeply about the people, the places, and what's going on here. In verse 3, if you look at uh, chapter 16, verse 3, it says, Paul circumcised Timothy, quote, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. I think what's really going on here means, or I think what's going on here means that Paul and Timothy saw it worth the sacrifice, the pain, not, not for Timothy's salvation, but for Timothy's witness in public. Timothy's circumcision was not for his own salvation, but for the sake of others. You see, since Timothy's status as uncircumcised would be known by the Jews, he would have conflicts with two groups of Jews that would limit his ministry. The first are those that we've talked about already. The, the ones who were persecuting Paul and chasing him from city to city. If Timothy remained uncircumcised, they would have ammunition to cause trouble for Timothy. They would accuse him of not caring for the law, not being a real Hebrew and being some bastardized, Greekified, half-breed Jew. And their slander, and perhaps even physical attacks, would keep Timothy from evangelizing in that area. They would go tell people, don't listen to him. He's a half-breed. He's not serious about God. So by circumcising Timothy, Paul is protecting him from possible persecution and extending his period of ministry in this area. And I think that is the most direct um, meaning we can get from this text. I think there's another meaning that we can also see, and that is based in what we talked about with culture and the, the groups of Jews, is that there would be this group of Jews who maybe wanted to hear the gospel or were interested to talk to Paul and Timothy, but were very concerned about purity. And they would be very hesitant to associate with Timothy if they knew he was uncircumcised. Because they would immediately see that as a red flag. He's probably unclean. I shouldn't have him in my house because he might make my house unclean. I shouldn't go to his house because he might feed me unclean foods. It would be best for me just not to associate with him. So there are people who were in their heart wanting to stay ceremonially clean to please God so that they could continue to go to temple and worship God. And if they hung out with Timothy, who was uncircumcised, there's a chance that they wouldn't be able to go to church. Um, and that would also make it very hard. So imagine trying to evangelize someone without being able to go to their house or have them come to your house or really even hang out. It's just not, not going to happen. But because Timothy was circumcised, 
the end of the, at the end of this passage, we saw the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. The first group who caused trouble for Paul don't cause any more trouble in Acts 16. And the second group, well, Timothy would be more able, he would have more open doors to spend time with them, the people that he wanted to evangelize. So Timothy was circumcised not for salvation, but for the sake of effective ministry and for the growth of the church. As a side note, this whole Acts 16, 1 through 5 shows that Timothy was really willing to put some skin in the game. So, I think we can see what this text means and what it meant back then. Because of that, I want to be sure that I have clarity by taking what we've learned and restating the passage in my own words, just to be sure I get it. I find this to be a very helpful practice when studying the Bible. So first, we're going to read the whole passage through one more time, and it should be clearer. We should have more more images in our mind and more understanding of what's going on here. Uh, And then I will give my paraphrase, my restatement. So Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance. Wow, observance. I was thinking observation. For observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And I'll I'll give my restatement in my own words here now. Paul went back to the cities where he had been persecuted to see how the churches were doing. While he was there, he met a young Christian named Timothy, who was on the fringes of the Jewish community because he was the uncircumcised son of a non-Jewish man. The leaders of the church respected Timothy and spoke well of him. Paul decided to bring Timothy along with him on his mission. So, to prevent further conflict with legalistic Jews, he circumcised Timothy. This would also open the door for Timothy to minister to Jews who were unlikely to associate with an uncircumcised man. And everyone knew who was circumcised and uncircumcised back then. So Timothy went with Paul to tell the churches in the area that they didn't have to do anything other than believe in Jesus to be saved. The Christians there believed more wholeheartedly, and more and more people came to Christ every day. Much of my personal Bible study time over the years has been spent just getting to that point. And I feel like when we get to that point, we've digested the text, and it started to sink into our hearts, and we could explain it to someone else. 
it's really rewarding to be able to understand a text and completely change the words, but still know, okay, I got it. I understand what's going on here. And then, now, I have that story more, more near memorized. It's, it's deeper in my heart, and I could explain it to someone who doesn't have any of that context um, in their mind already. So now we're going to come to the last kind of clarity, purpose. So the purpose of the text. So far, our clarity has been geared toward understanding the text. And now we're going to pivot to application. This is pastoral in nature, and it answers the question, why? Why did God ordain all of these things to happen? Why did God have Luke write them down? And why are we reading them here today, 2,000 years later? I think, I think at this point, we can safely say that God doesn't have us reading this text so that we will have a plastic surgeon on retainer at Providence Community Church. I think we're safe on that point. No, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And perhaps as we've been talking about this and digesting this, you've already come to understand what the purpose of this text might be. Maybe you've already thought of a specific action or the Holy Spirit has been pressing something on your heart that you think he wants to spur you on toward. If not, I want to take a second to pause and have you think about the story that we've read and what it means and perhaps how God purposes that for the church and for you as an individual. I think that this is, this is kind of the more open-ended end of, of the sermon. As we, as we gather knowledge, we come to a more specific meaning of the text. And then as that comes into our lives, there's all sorts of ways that it can be expressed. So I've come up with four reasons that I think God wants us to read this passage today. First is to encourage us to be willing to endure suffering for the good of the church. There may be things that we can do that would be good for the church that may not be pleasant to us. <clears throat> the first one off the top of my mind is just giving money. That is not a naturally pleasant action for selfish human beings. I don't walk down the street like just handing people money. But we know that it's good for the church. We also have the command not to, to pay our pastors, or as Paul says, not to muzzle the ox as it treads the field. And if Pastor Chris is anything, he's an ox. <laughs> Shouldn't muzzle him. Uh, another kind of suffering we can endure for Christ would be social ostracism or rejection that would come from identifying with Christ. 
that makes us more mature, makes us more faithful. And the church grows not in quantity, but in quality. as The individual members become more mature in Christ. I think a second reason, purpose God has for this text in our lives today is to remind us that any loss we face on earth is incomparable to our treasures in heaven. For example, there was something I really wanted. Like, let's say it was my dream to have tattoos. But I also believe that God has called me to minister in Japan. It would be better for me to not get tattoos and to appear as a normal person than to show up and have them associate me kind of implicitly with the Japanese mafia who are really big into tattoos. If you're in Japan and you've got big tattoos, you're probably associated with the Yakuza. And it's like, if you want to go as a Christian and reach people, you don't want to go with sleeves. So, so maybe my compromise, a, a tiny, tiny sacrifice I could make would be, okay, I'll just get a small tattoo somewhere I can conceal it all the time. Ironically, that means I wouldn't be able to go to most public bathhouses in Japan. So kind of brings back. Um, or just not getting a tattoo at all, right? The cost of that is nothing. It is a, a small price to pay for the possible salvation of other people. I highly doubt that years into his ministry, Timothy looked back on his life and just wished Paul never came near him with that knife. I don't think that's, that's running through Timothy's mind. I think that the first time Timothy baptized a Jew to become a Christian, he thought, worth. Gain. I don't remember what happened three months ago, however long it took him to, to baptize his first. It's like, the pain is gone. I don't notice it anymore. Who cares? It was so worth it for me to take a weekend off and a little bit of pain for this man to be baptized into Christ. So our losses we may face, our potential losses we may face on earth are not comparable to our treasures in heaven. I think a third purpose God has for this text in our lives today is to call us toward excellent Christian integrity. Paul was so serious about not giving his enemies any ammunition that he would have Timothy circumcised. We should be as serious about remaining above reproach in order to preserve our opportunities to witness as much as we can. There are some things that we need to do. And there are some things that we need to not do. If we want people to take us seriously when we present the gospel to them. Otherwise... We're just snake oil salesmen who come around and live one life and sell a different gospel. And finally, most importantly, I think the main purpose of this text for our lives today is to magnify Christ. Timothy was a Christian. 
means little Christ. And all he was doing was following in the footsteps of his Savior. Let's think about it. Timothy's sacrifice, as I said, was to lose a little bit of skin, take a weekend off, get over it. Not a big deal. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to for his own advantage. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in likeness of men. Christ disrobed himself of his deity by taking on humanity. For decades, he suffered hunger, thirst, loneliness, rejection, misunderstanding, betrayal, and the most torturous and wicked death that men at that time could come up with. Just as Timothy made a tiny, ephemeral, painful sacrifice for the church, Christ made one ultimate sacrifice for the church. That being raised by the Father, exalted, and given the name above every name, we would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, to end this sermon, we're going to come to the table and we're going to remember Christ's sacrifice. As we, as we look to Timothy and see his sacrifice, we should look past Timothy. We should look behind Timothy and look to Christ and his sacrifice. We're going to come bow humbly before the only one who could fulfill the law and the only one who could make an atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for magnifying your Son for your glory by your Spirit in the Word today. Thank you that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful and that all Scripture points to Christ. We thank you for the model of Christians who sacrifice for the sake of the church and as they point us toward Christ who made one perfect atoning sacrifice for the church. We ask now that we would come to the table in a humble and right manner that we would discern properly what the body and blood of Jesus Christ mean and that we would be forgiving and seek forgiveness because you sought us and forgave us. We ask that you you bless this time of reflection, prayer, and of worship that we might see you more clearly. Amen.